good afternoon and welcome to India's Heritage, Preserving the Past While Embracing the Future, a Latrobe Asia webinar presented in collaboration with Australia India Institute as part of Australia India Week. My name is Beck Strading, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who are watching this webinar this afternoon. Part of our role at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. India boasts some of the world's most spectacular UNESCO World Heritage Sites, ranging from natural wonders like the Himalayan National Park to the cultural treasures such as the Agra Fort and the Taj Mahal. While these sites of rich cultural heritage are treated with respect and pride in India, modernisation, tourism and everyday living have all presented challenges for India in terms of conserving the past. So how can India preserve its heritage while pursuing a smart city agenda? Who holds responsibility for maintaining and preserving these sites? And how does heritage status affect the local individual, individuals and communities? Here with me to answer some of these pressing questions is our expert panel. First, I would like to welcome Professor Utpul Sharma, who is Zooming in from India this afternoon. Utpul is the Dean and Director at the Institute of Architecture and Planning at Nirma University in India. And also, I just found out, was a trained architect. So welcome, Utpul. Our next panellist is Dr Kiran Shind, who is a Senior Lecturer in Planning at La Trobe University. Kiran is an expert on religious tourism, heritage and urban planning, particularly uh, in the South Asian context. Welcome, Kiran. Thank you. Our third guest is Dr. Anita Smith, who is a lecturer in archaeology and history at La Trobe University uh, with expertise in world heritage matters. Anita is currently the cultural expert member in Australia's delegation uh, to the UNESCO World Heritage Committee uh, for the years 2017 to 2021. Welcome, Anita. There will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the second half of this webinar, for which we will be using the Q&A function, which you should see uh, at the bottom uh, of your, your Zoom uh, panel. But anyway, let's get into it. Uh, Utpal, I might, like, I might start with you. Uh, what for you are the key issues uh, or tensions in India in terms of this need to modernise cities uh, but preserve the past? Are there general issues uh, that exist across, you know, all cities or all cultural heritage sites or does each city or region have its own unique challenges? That a lot of issues are which are... Uh in general for all the Indian towns and cities. And as of now, the major issues for urban development in India, where all the, most of the heritage sites are located, historic cities, is the poor urban planning. A lot of uh, infrastructure issues, and also the issues of land management and municipal governance. These are general issues for most of the Indian towns and cities in India. And in the constitution of India, which is the whole urban planning has been left to the state, like Gujarat is the state, so they are, they are in charge of the urban planning, including heritage. Now the government of India actually doesn't have much role to play, but now they're starting with a slogan called smart cities. Or they're trying to take away the agenda from the local state to the center, but it is not their responsibility. So they are high, you know, hijacking the slogan, but they are not giving adequate funding to really 
make you know, all the towns and cities to be planned and all the heritage to be taken care of. So that is a big problem. In a sense, it burden it with the local municipal corporation or the state body, but the government of India is pursuing the agenda of smart city. So the whole the three tire thing are not really matching. And that is true for all over India. So in now, terms of this concern, uh, India has plenty of heritage. It is flooded with this. And for city, Ahmedabad was the first city to get a UNESCO heritage city. And now last year it was Jaipur. And there are plenty, lots of them, Jaisalmer, Jodhpur, you name it, and so many of them. But they have to really prepare a dossier and bid to the UNESCO. So they are not really, you know, governance was equipped to really apply for, for getting an UNESCO status. But otherwise, in terms of heritage, etc., Probably there are far, far better uh, towns and cities than Ahmedabad. Okay, but they have not applied because the municipal governance is not that strong. They need also professional support to really bid and get into the UNESCO World Heritage Center. So in terms of the, the Smart Cities Initiative, I mean, what is the Indian government promising with the Smart City? You mentioned that there's actually not a lot of funding associated with it, but is this, uh, this idea of Smart Cities, what are they wanting to do and how does it sort of, um, I guess, present challenges for uh, balancing progress with heritage? No, as I told you, the responsibility of planning is with the state government. Like for, for Melbourne, it will be Victoria State and not the Australian government. Like for Gujarat, it is the government of Gujarat or Assam, it is the government of Assam. Now, government of India is saying that we want to pursue the agenda of smart cities. Now, but they are giving some amount of money, it is too little. And probably when we have 30 to 40 percent of the people living in slums and the city doesn't have proper water supply and sanitation and you need basic solid waste management. In that situation, talking about smart cities and say the government of India giving you some money and you can develop a few hundred hectares of land as a kind of Barcelona or New York, it doesn't cut any ice because you don't need it. What you need is the funding for basic infrastructure and upgrading the quality of life. But government is saying that, okay, it is like, you know, we are giving you a kind of a sweet dish at the end of the dinner. But dinner, we, the state has to make it. Government is said, okay, and we'll give you a sweet dish called smart city. And you can improve some area and make it look beautiful. But then what about that? I'm talking about only 100 cities, but there are 7,000 towns. Okay, what happens to them? And what happens to the rest of the city in terms of basic infrastructure? Because government is not giving, it is not their job. If the Constitution of India gives a responsibility to the state. The problem in India is that enter funding, the tax that we collect is goes to the center. Then they give it to the state and the local body. So center has only money. But because it is not their responsibility, they are giving some money as a smart city. But actually they should make amendment in the Constitution to have a regular budget provision for urban development. Like it can be in the if we amend the constitution, it can be called a concurrent list. It's a responsibility both state and the center. Both of them pays money. It was like this for education earlier. It was education or responsibility for state. Now it is for both. So both, both the parties giving money, the education sector is coming up. And uh, these urban areas, in spite of having lack of infrastructure, it produces 70 to 75% of the GDP of the country. And burden, you are getting the money, you are not plowing it back for the improving the infrastructure. There are other needs for backward area, developing the tribal area, for defense, etc. But you cannot starve an earning member of a family who wants the money for you and you are starving that guy by not providing the right infrastructure. I think there is a whole big policy kind of shift that is required, that is being debated right now, so that we get adequate funding for urban infrastructure. Because you cannot really collect property tax and say that I'm going to, with that money, I'm going to really build the infrastructure of the town. It is not possible. So we need uh, federal funding for urban development, not like smart city, but total planning of the cities and infrastructure. And that kind of change is required. That so is the kind of big debate that is happening. 
and government of india is hiding behind the smart city smoke screen because we are giving you some money develop little bit of an area but what you need is something very very different well that is a really interesting uh, analysis of the smart cities and i'm interested now to get kiran your point of view i mean do you share um this perspective on on the smart cities and and the issues uh that upu just raised in terms of the funding and and issues with infrastructure and urban development uh or do you see that there are other kind of key issues and tensions in terms of this need to modernize cities while simultaneously preserving the past okay <clears throat> i think upal has uh, very nicely put the governance perspective from the uh classical way we talk about the top down approach i'll take a little bit of a different angle here and talk it from the bottoms up kind of a scenario because i think that the issues exist at number of level it's just not that the governments need to push for any of these stuff i think mean, uh everything that utpala said is almost the same issue across the board and uh, just one comment on the smart cities i think it's it's more of a pilot agenda it's it's more of a demonstration value to smart cities as an urban development or urban rejuvenation approach right so we've gone through different cycles of urbanization and therefore different approaches to respond to issues of urbanization so smart cities is essentially the technology based intervention into cities and we all are completely aware that same technology cannot be applied across india because of the diversity that we have you know not, we've got huge range of uh, small towns medium towns large towns small villages village country village all, all assortment right so it's not going to solve any all the problems it's only it only has a demonstration value so we we'll leave that smart cities on that front more so in terms of heritage there's hardly anything in smart cities agenda because they're talking about using technology to solve problems now heritage is intrinsically a very subjective matter right so uh, i'll i'll put this as uh, heritage is like the umbilical cord you know it connects one's existence with the past now and that makes it very challenging because on one side you want to catch up with what the society is showing us in terms of development and the agenda of development is completely hijacked by the capitalist move that india is going through right now now if you move to that direction of acquisition material wealth all of that fundamentally that's at odds with what we have been taught to live as by our parents grandparents on the frugality and the kind of sustainable sustenance kind of a thing now that that value system is completely odds and that makes it even harder so at individual level people are struggling of understanding what's my heritage what should i carry forward because even if for example i am my father for example is a priest and he's supposed to do all the worships and pujas and all of that right now that's an integral part of being a hindu and an indian right or any other religion doesn't matter but then at that time of worship i'm supposed to attend a call in the us so i'm on zoom so you know you you're constantly negotiating a different kind of technology which was not available 15 years ago so the model of development that we are pushing ourselves into is at very very dif- difficult juncture with where what we should preserve right so we then tokenistically preserve our festivals and all sorts of things i'm not generalizing for everybody i'm just saying from an individual perspective it arises so what do you start valuing as heritage at individual level and then at collective level and at the community level and then the city level and that's where the the breaks starts to happen at a much higher level because suddenly you've got this international recognition and there is this whole showcasing of heritage and that showcasing of heritage gets governments involved but till that time you're only talking about your own heritage and that's a big tussle because then the government comes and says we are going to improve heritage we are going to do this for heritage and that but the people who are whose heritage we are talking about are they willing to participate in that conversation around heritage conservation because they are marching towards another model of development and you're trying to hold them back 
to say, no, no, we want you to settle down in the same 200, 300, 400 year old houses. And we want you to be the living museum kind of a thing. So that's the first level of tension for me. That's a hardcore tension, right? And then you start looking at this tension a little more closely. You find out that it's not the natives who are living in the cities anymore. There are migrants who are coming in. And the migrants are coming, urbanization means migration. Now, people who are migrating into the towns, and now we can talk about most cities in India have almost anything between 30 to 60% of their populations are migrants, right? Now, how are those migrants going to attribute the value of heritage to something that they have only come in contact with in recent 5, 10, 15 years? And that's a very, very challenging situation because they would probably be fascinated by the heritage that they have seen, but they may not belong to that heritage. So that's a second level of problem that migration comes in and comes in close contact with these natives. And we've got all these um, challenges around identity and, you know, we've got the interstate problems, intrastate problems. You're coming from this heritage, that heritage. So all those issues are underpinning any development of heritage that you're talking about. So, and we need to be mindful about that because eventually whose heritage is being preserved? That's a key question. And, and there, are, there are disagreements over it. And therefore, where the governments are able to push for a certain agenda, they can get that declared as heritage or you know whatever you want to see. As, so that, that's the second undercurrent of migration that is really important. The third one that we talk that I think about is this whole social and spatial fabric that makes up a town. How people live, what they do, all of that has a certain intangible, ephemeral, ephemeral value that nobody else can put a cost to. And that becomes quite challenging. I mean, how would you compensate someone for uh, you know, taking away their property and say, we are going to declare this heritage? And, and we've all known that compensation, land acquisition, uh, land ownership, all the issues that Uppal talked about, are they're, they're real issues. I mean, who gives the state the authority to displace someone because they like a certain building or certain artifacts? And that's going to be a very big issue coming in Ahmedabad. Okay, I'm going to stop here. Well, I just wanted to sort of um, pick your brain on a specific uh, kind of cultural heritage site because you've given us a really great overview of some of the general uh, trends and issues, but you've done interesting research on Ahmadabad uh, and you've said that in your research that in the rush to modernise many buildings, um, the rush to modernise, many buildings and structures have kind of come under risk. So uh, why... Is it important to preserve these buildings and structures in terms of cultural heritage? Uh, and also, what role is there for community consultation uh, in these modernisation um, uh, conservation debates? Okay. This is an ongoing project that uh, I'm doing with Utpal. And uh, so it's not yet complete. Uh, Utpal and Nirma University has been... Uh, I, I don't know if appointed is the right word, but I think Nirmai is, is helping the Ahmedabad Municipal Council to do extensive documentation because one of the conditions that was in the UNESCO's declaration of uh, Ahmedabad's recognition as a living heritage city was uh, that we need to have greater documentation about this variety. I think in the, in the document, there was something like 2,900 odd structures of buildings that were included in this old city area, which is just about five, a little more than five and a half square kilometers. So it's a very congested area where there were uh, close to 400,000 people living. So this is a living heritage city. So the, the idea is that they are living in certain kind of neighborhoods. There's living in, in certain kind of set ways that is important. It's just not the ways, but also the buildings that support them. So in fact, UNESCO's declaration comes under two criteria, mainly criteria number two and criteria number five. So the criteria number two is about explicitly on historic architecture. And I think what the core 
of Ahmedabad shows, the core city of Ahmedabad shows, is six centuries of development of a certain style of architecture. And it's, it's quite, and then it became very popular across the Gujarat region. Uh, it's very uh, closely tied with the climate. It's tied with the way people were living in there. So, uh, you know, over time, how people have changed uses, usages, and it's a very close-knit fabric. So uh, around courtyards, you've got certain buildings that have emerged. And because of the cultural ways, these, this architecture is also very articulate. It's, it's very, very detailed. It's, it's, it's just beautiful. Now, if you want, and, and it, this building industry also supported an enormous arts and crafts industry. So it, it's just not the building, it's just the overall living environment that's important. Mm. Now, if any of the buildings are torn down in terms of trying to modernize. So just an example, you know, people's, people are not the ones who are, how they used to live 200 years ago, right? Today we want air conditioning because Ahmedabad also has is one of the really hot cities. So everybody wants an air condition. Now, how do you put a big air condition in a small house, which is so intrinsically in, in, in the interior of it, right? You have to break something to put that air condition in. Now, the toilets that we are using now, the Western toilets, you know, the, the market is full of all these Western WCs. Now, that, that's something that's really you know, at the core of the problem. I mean, if you like, I'm just giving you one example, right? So we had used to have the Indian WCs of the traditional systems of water supply and sanitation. Now, now everybody wants a Western WC. Now, how do you put that in without destroying something? Now, the moment you start kind of converting one part into the other part, you've already changed the way you have started to live. So, and we are talking of a whole generational change here, right? Also, there are certain figures which tell us that over the last 15, 20 years, the population has declined from 500, close to 500,000 to now about 315,000. So people are moving out because they can't live in these kind of situations mm -hmm. right now. So architecturally, they are marvelous. They're beautiful. But if people start moving out, then we have a problem. Because where is the living heritage? I mean... What do you preserve then, if not people? So the tie between the living conditions and the buildings is so intrinsic that you cannot achieve one without the other, right? So the building and the whole settlement is a container for the heritage, also of heritage itself, right? So if we are able to unpack that multi-layering that's happening, so it's knowledge, traditional wisdom, the aesthetics, the, all of that composite that makes up the tangible culture, if that goes away, all the intangible culture that is supported in that kind of a settlement will go away. So it's absolute must that at least those reminiscences are there for reference for, I mean, they, someone uh, has said that they are the evidences of the past. But I think they are more than evidences of the past. They are the vanguards of how sustainable living should be. So there are models that can be emulated. Therefore, it is a must that we preserve these buildings and structures. Of course, how we do that, there's a completely different ballgame altogether. And, and, and there is a lot of struggle around it. I mean, that's a separate question. So I, I think I'll stop here and then we'll get everyone else to contribute. I think we'll come back to that question because that's a really important question that you ended on there, Kieran. And uh, in your previous answer, you talked a bit about the international dimensions. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Anita uh, is currently the cultural expert member in Australia's delegation to the UNESCO World Heritage Committee. So I'm wondering uh, whether I can get your views on the role of international organisations such as UNESCO uh, in dealing with some of these dilemmas around preserving cultural sites, uh, not just in India, but also more generally. Thank you, Beck. Um, well, first of all, we, UNESCO has quite a number of programs in the culture sector that deal with historic cultural sites, with archaeological sites, with various other cultural sites. 
and with uh, heritage more generally. Of course, the most famous of them is the World Heritage Convention, which we've already been discussing, the 1972 Convention. But there is also the 2003 Intangible Cultural Heritage Convention, which covers a lot more of uh, social practices, songs, stories, dance, and sometimes it's related to sites where particular practices are particularly associated with a place. Um, there are also many other kinds of guidance documents and standards that UNESCO has around heritage. Perhaps one of the most sort of uh, fitting ones in this context is the the historic urban landscapes um, guidance and standards, which are a sort of process that UNESCO has developed for dealing with the, the living city, for looking at conservation and the kinds of guidance in, in incorporating and including all aspects of the city, the people and the layers of the fabric and whatever in developing management of a place. Um, the World Heritage Convention, of course, which I'm mostly associated with, um, famously establishes the World Heritage List um, and it's probably the principal vehicle by which UNESCO is engaged with cultural sites. It's not, of course, only for cultural sites. As Beck said, in India there's there's natural sites as well. In fact, I think India has about 38 sites on the World Heritage List, of which about 30 are cultural sites and the others are natural sites. Um, just by way of comparison, Australia has 20 sites. So there are, India has been a, a very long and very heavily in engaged and involved in the World Heritage Convention since the beginning and, and also in the Intangible Cultural Heritage Convention more recently. I guess it's important to remember when we have these discussions that it's not UNESCO that protects these places. UNESCO is simply an intergovernmental agency that is made up of the member states and the decisions of UNESCO are decisions of the member states, um, not, not any kind of group of paid people in UNESCO, they don't make the decisions, they put forward ideas, but it's the member states through various committees that actually make the decisions. Um, so for sites on the World Heritage List, the responsibility for conservation and protection rests solely with the state party where the, the um, site is located. So with all of the potential benefits and particularly the, the notoriety and um, pr pride that comes with having World Heritage Sites, there's also a very large obligation on the state party to be able to protect them. And it is certainly the case that the more sites that you, a country has on the World Heritage List, the more heavy is that responsibility for them to be able to protect them. And in most cases, of, as we've been talking about, the responsibility for protection and conservation does get devolved within, in, in, within countries down to states or perhaps particular groups um, in regions. In Australia, it's devolved to the states. And I gather from what Udpal was saying that it also is in India. Um, India's cultural heritage is extraordinary and diverse. It's a very large country, an incredibly rich and diverse country, and there's some fabulous sites that reflect that diversity on the World Heritage List. Of course, the famous ones that Beck mentioned, like the Taj Mahal and the Agra Fort, but there's also lots of other sites, archaeological sites. There's the railways that are on for their, their technologies. There's modern architecture, like Le Corbusier's buildings in India. And then one of my favourites is the Jantnamanta um, uh, Astronomical Observation Site in Jayapur, which I think is a really stunningly interesting site. Many of India's sites are, of course, uh, very large and very complex, like Amandabad and Jayapur, most recently the historic city that went on to the World Heritage List. Um, these sites are living sites and all sites really, all, all World Heritage sites are living sites because they all do have local communities around them. They, many of them still are active in as, as religious sites, sites of social and cultural practices and even sites with sort of local economies that are dependent on them. So they are all living sites in some way. So the role of UNESCO in, in the World Heritage Sites and in, in its other cultural conventions is the administration and management of, of, those, uh, of the conventions themselves, but not the conservation of the sites. So, for example, when a World Heritage nomination is submitted by the government, and it will always be the, the member state that submits it, not local communities or governments, which is slightly different to the Intangible Cultural Heritage Convention, where local communities can submit uh, inventory to the inventory uh, 
pieces of intangible cultural heritage. But for the World Heritage Convention, when a nomination gets submitted, it gets submitted to UNESCO, but then it gets independently evaluated by heritage professionals. They make a report. It comes back to the World Heritage Committee, which is made up of the 21 member states that continually rotate, but Australia is on it at the moment, which is why I attend the meetings at the moment. And then the committee will review the documentation, they'll review the results of the professionals, and then they will make the decision about whether the place should go onto the World Heritage List now or possibly in future with a bit more work. But once it does, the responsibility fairly and squarely goes back to the state party to look after it. UNESCO does monitor sites. It's actually the World Heritage Committee monitor sites through UNESCO staff um, on a regular basis. So they will check that, it's, that things are all right in sites, that particularly um, it's in the, in the convention it is possible for local communities or for non-government organisations or anyone to write directly to the committee and to say that things are not looking good in a particular site or that people are unhappy and the committee can intervene and request information from the state party and um, ask the state party to investigate and to improve the situation, whether it's conservation or it's consultation or whatever. So the state party then will respond to that. And the, the World Heritage Committee has a significant amount of power in that regard. And this, the convention gives that power in that it can really highlight to the rest of the world if a member state is not doing the things that it should be to look after its, its uh, site. So there are checks and balances for these things, these issues that, that Kiran and Upal have been talking about in the World Heritage context in the Mandabad, where communities may be unhappy or there's, there's not sustainable livelihoods that are being developed alongside the protection of the heritage. Um, so I'll leave it there. Well, just on that, I mean, you make a very important point about, um, you know, the limits of what international organisations can do, and it's really member states that are the ones that are responsible for these issues. That's but right. what do you, what are the main sort of areas of tension in terms of the ideas around um, preserving cultural heritage at an international level where there's experts such as yourself uh, and, and people working on these issues and they might be providing advice or they might be monitoring things that are going on at local levels. I mean, is there a tension between these international ideals and what people uh, who are living in these living cities want to do? Um, what are the sort of key points of tension, I guess, between those uh, different groups of people or, or organisations? I think that that's um, it's a very interesting question. So it would take a lot longer than we have tonight to kind of answer it in any meaningful way. What I will say, though, is I think that there was... The convention is evolving and the list and the strategies around the list and the requirements of the listing are changing in much the same way as Kieran was saying that people are modernising in cities and people's lives are changing, so the convention is modernising at the same time. In the past, I think there were, it was very much a fabric, what we call fabric-based convention, so it was very much about preserving the places, the, the fabric of the places, making them look nice, keeping them beautiful, kind of, and, and often that did go with excluding local communities or particular practices or and particularly a very sad history of, of the removal of Indigenous people from natural areas in the past too. But increasingly, and particularly in the last sort of 15 years, the emphasis has been far more on what happens and the people in that, the recognition that all sites are living sites, and without them being able to sustain the communities around them, that heritage is meaningless. It becomes a building that has no soul, if you like. Um, and so there are increasing um, uh, ways in which that is operationalised within the convention and particularly that uh, the UN and UNESCO and all of the agencies of the UN now have to work within a human rights framework that complies with the Human Rights Convention. And that is meant for the World Heritage Process, that now within a nomination or a management plan, development of a management plan for a site, uh, human rights have to be uh, recognised and that state parties now must 
justify in nominations, how local communities have been involved in the nomination and development of the nomination, how they will be uh, involved in the management of the site, how they were consul consulted, and particularly even with Indigenous communities, they have to give their free, prior and informed consent now for the nomination to go ahead. So that is a real mindset now that has changed and is looking at basically people are saying if if the people who are the owners, traditional owners, if you like, in an Australian sense, on this place that have historically lived or their ancestors have lived, that they work and live and have created what people consider to be heritage of this place. If they are not happy, then the heritage won't be happy, that the values won't continue. It was really um, very interesting that we, in the in the Jayapur nomination that we reviewed, to look at the tensions, a look at the nomination, and to hear we were lobbied by, as members of the committee, we were lobbied by community groups and non-government organisations in relation to the dissatisfaction they felt about the, that nomination process and how it had gone. Not not the whole thing. Of course, Jaipur is a, is a living historic city that's incredibly complex, but part of its values for that were the, its world heritage, that are now its world heritage values that were proposed was the life ways and the crafts and the interactions historically between different cultural groups, the cultural practices, in the city and the way that that is reflected in the layout of the city was very much about what is important internationally and significantly and why it would go on the World Heritage List. So we were very interested to hear from NGOs and people, community members um, from there about what they felt needed to go into the management plan that hadn't already and what the committee needed to recommend to, to the state party, to India, and obviously to the people in the, in the state who have developed this, about what else needs to be done about this nomination. And it did go onto the World Heritage List, but with recommendations about better recording of people's lifeways, ensuring that sustainable lifeways were developed, that uh, adequate tourism, uh, cultural tourism plans were there that would not turn the city into a kind of a, a Hollywood version of itself. So I'll stop there. We can talk a lot more about that. Now, I think that's a really interesting um, set of observations around, you know, the importance of including the community in any kind of discussions around a living city. Uh, now, we do, we, we are about to head into Q&A, so do pop your question in the Q&A box. But just before we do that, I might um, turn to Utpul and just get um, your perspective on some of these discussions about the importance of uh, community uh, consultation and involvement in uh, decisions around heritage and modernization. Yeah, Ahmedabad, the old city there various what the communities are called poles. It's a community of say maybe 500 houses or 200 and each of them is a kind of a community organization. They are very proud about their heritage. So it is not very easy to transform the building inside because they will not allow it to happen. Okay. But the things are getting transformed and demolished along the main street, which is basically a commercial area, which is not really part of the community as such. Okay. So there are strong representation of the local whole community to preserve the heritage of that area and not allow major transformation to happen. Though they may not have too much of funding, but they are the people who live there and they have, to have formed a kind of a resilient welfare association kind of a situation, there are many of them. But there is also a kind of an organization, a little of uh, French government, they also came and they get a lot of funding for conserving some of the havelis and some of the school buildings. They are still working there. And Ahmedabad Municipal Corporation, they have also created a separate trust, not really the corporation. It's a kind of a heritage uh, conservation trust where there are experts like me and some other people and they are working with the local community to find out what really needs to be done there and what kind of help and assistance. Because government is like, they will give money one time, they cannot really deal with each of the community separately and needs very, very careful handling with each of the community. So this trust is now beginning to work. Another thing that is happening is that, you know, though we are talking about smart city is not a good idea, but if you get some money for the five square kilometer of land, maybe we can totally upgrade the infrastructure you know, with better roads, water supply, drainage, etc. It can apply for some grant from the government of India to improve the infrastructure, not the buildings, but the 
particular streets and public spaces probably could have been can be worked out. Right now, there's a big study that is going on, conducted by government of India called National Institute of Urban Affairs. Uh, there's that kind of a research institution of the government of India. They're working on doing a study for the city of Ahmedabad. Report is not yet out, but I'm one of the members to take consult regularly. So they're looking for a kind of a comprehensive proposal with respect to traffic, pedestrian movement, uh, public spaces, signages, water supply, drainage, etc., are being looked into. And probably, say, a year from now, maybe there's some good amount of funding may be available under the smart city mission, at least to improve the infrastructure to a different level than what it is today. The major issue here is that there are a lot of buildings which are vacant because people have moved out as Kiran has said, and some of them have become good downs. Or some other, it is also the center of the city of Ahmedabad, a commercial hub. So many of the houses got converted into commercial because there are a whole lot of wholesale and other trading. And uh, there are many people who do not think too highly about heritage because they are you not, know, they want to earn money, they are doing business. So, but there's a set of people who think it is very powerful and the heritage also need to be protected. There's a kind of a two divergent viewpoint. And at the same time, many people are saying that, okay, if my building is heritage, I need a million dollars to improve my house. And where is the money? Who is going to help me out? Because even if I live in that way, I have to put in a Western toilet. I have to put air conditioner. I have to convert my house so that I can uh, convert my house into maybe a guest house or a hotel so that I can earn some money. But I had to put in some resources, which I don't have. And uh, banks are not giving me loan. Neither government is giving any assistance. How do I do? So as a part of this, uh, the municipal corporation, we are uh, trying to work on what you call that transferable development right. Instead of breaking your own house, compared to the built-up area, you can sell kind of a what you call TDR or FAR to the local builder lobby, which is very popular. And uh, so that the money will be available to the owner of the house to improve the house. The problem is that houses are very small. So now we are telling the municipal corporation to create a body so that they can buy and sell the built-up area so that money that comes from the real estate market can be plowed back even to the owner with some technical help because some of the issues like very intricate curving of woods and other things, it cannot be done by local carpenters. We need specialist help also. So these are being now being talked about. So this is coming, you know, People are getting interested and they're realizing the gravity of the situation and challenges ahead. And but uh, not much has happened as of now, but whole thing is being under preparation. So maybe some year or two years from now, you will see a lot of improvement in the condition of buildings and transformation. So that's uh, that's a kind of a situation. And the local community for the poll, they're they're very strong about not allowing things to happen because they're particularly only about a particular kind of community people can live there, outside guests cannot move in. There are a whole lot of other issues with which only this group can handle. And that will actually help, indirectly help preserving the identity of the government, you know, the build form. Beauty of Ahmedabad is that all the buildings are interconnected. You cannot separate one building from another. Unlike Jaipur, you can remove a building and nothing will happen. Unlike Hyderabad, you can remove a building, a city said, Ahmedabad, the fabric is all interconnected as if it is one building. Okay, that's why you cannot touch. And that is what is the beauty of Ahmedabad. Mm -hmm. And that's what the local people are very proud about, but probably they have issues of funding and issues of management and some help from the government as to how to take care. But they, are, they know that this is to be reserved, but they are not so much for tourism as such because Ahmedabad is not really that kind of a tourist place like Jaipur or any other place because it's a business city. On top of that, Gujarat is a dry state because of Gandhiji. So there are no beer, no drinks available. So many the tourists, they are not coming. They come more than day tourists. They come to Ahmedabad for business and they come for a few hours to the city and they go back. So it, is, it is not on a really tourist hotspot as such. But a city of 8 million people, we have enough people to go to Ramdabad old city mm -hmm. all the time. And I give an example. I was earlier working for a, one of the plaza for the city called Bhadra Plaza. It was, a, it was a, in front of the old palace. It was the public square, which got Britishers there converted into parking lot and etc. We got the money from government of India 
and we actually renovated the plaza and all the archaeology department and everybody came and not a color of the stone all the details were worked out then we realized that it was done so beautifully but earlier there are about 400 hawkers in that particular space now there are 1500 okay so actually for the city like this you cannot do something at one place you have to do the everything together because you do that mm -hmm. you do something and whole thing is like a gentrification everybody comes there and they destroy the whole thing so it's such a beautiful place but it cannot accommodate so many informal activities so they have to shift it out but they are not willing to go because they are going to bring a good business it means that we have to really improve the infrastructure for the entire old city of amdavad together with public spaces parking etc we cannot do one of one little space and say that this is the demonstration that's an issue I'm glad you mentioned um, the tourism uh, issues because uh, we we're on to Q and A now, and our first question is actually uh, about tourism. So, Kieran, I might get you to to respond to this. Uh, it's kind of a, a comment, but uh, there seems to be a race uh, in uh, in some countries uh, to have properties listed as UNESCO World Heritage sites, uh, and it's often based upon tourist ambition. So, I'm wondering whether you can uh, kind of explain to uh, our audience uh, some of the issues around, uh, you know, wanting to, uh, I guess, attract tourism. Uh, without the sort of negative consequences that tourism can, can often come with uh, for for uh, heritage sites. Interesting that people want tourists, but not their impacts, which is highly impossible. <laughs> uh, in fact, most of my research has been over the last uh, few years has been uh, looking at how tourists and tourism impacts the environment, the social, cultural, and physical environment. In its totality in places. So, one thing is, of course, you can talk about all, everything, but the moment there is a human coming into a place, there is going to be an impact. So let's accept that. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we reduce that impact, mitigate that impact, sensitize that impact? That's something that is doable, right? Now, particularly with cultural sites, the driving factor is this exotic, the exotic other that the people want to really see. that's the crux of tourism right uh, cultural tourism particularly with unesco labels and there is there is a fair amount of research which has debated does a unesco label really bring in the kind of benefits of tourism that we are looking for and my own work uh, in buddhist heritage sites uh, in the last year and a uh, few sites in india but in mathura vrindavan and all of that it suggests that any kind of labeling does not really attract as much tourism as we are anticipating mm -hmm. what it attracts is it just provides a little global platform as an awareness for people who are traveling but people taking lonely planet that's the more than enough it doesn't really say whether it's got a unesco heritage site or not for example people would be interested in particular aspects of culture right so mm -hmm. uh and and therefore does unesco recognize or not doesn't really matter honestly that's that's what my research shows yes uh somebody who's kind of making a bucket list and you've got on that bucket list or oh, this is a phenomenal site it's an exotic culture you need to see this people have been traveling to see those kind of cultures all the time mm -hmm. unesco label or no label doesn't matter where it matters is the institutional setup of governance of how do you manage that destination because as unesco would require or the label would require that you have to have management plans in place you have to really factor in you have to document so what it does is it mobilizes the community and it rallies the community around a certain image building and identity building and that identity can then be sold to tourists for consumption right so that that's where the limitation is when I mean, for example why would a five star hotel chain build a hotel in a tourist spot once they know that there is a global recognition for that they are more confident to put in that kind of investment because they know now that there will be some international tourists that will come in also particularly with exotic tourism there is always a certain kind of allied activities with tourists so nobody goes to india only to see taj mahal 
that may be the primary motive but when they are going to taj mahal they'll also go to delhi they'll also go to jaipur they'll go to a few other places around it so you know how does that whole packaging happens this brings us to the other important feature in tourism which is called competitiveness the competitive advantage how does a site so if you are looking at amdabad now that is got unesco world heritage site vadodara which is kind of two hours driving distance from amdabad is also equally beautiful hmm. but it won't people won't go there because now unesco world heritage label is with amdabad right so that's the kind of a big difference that labeling like any other labeling certification helps in improving the market position it does not necessarily mean that the benefits are transferred to the local community well anita i might ask you uh, if you've got views on on the tourism issue but i will also give you another question from the q and a uh, and that is about uh, one of our audience members uh, is asking about the critical issue of the often prehistoric sites uh, so it's great that we have an archaeology expert on the panel to help us with this uh, and and the audience member says that the the crucial evidence uh, around these sites is often uh, completely ignored uh, but they should be factored in uh, during planning and um, the audience member is curious to know whether uh, these pre often forgotten prehistoric sites are actually being factored in so i'm wondering whether anita you can uh, respond to that okay um, firstly on the tourism just uh, just I think that you know Kieran makes some really fabulous points there, and and I find it interesting that quite often when I just speak to people about world heritage and where they want to go, they actually don't even know the difference between, say, the World Monuments Fund and the World Heritage Convention, or you know the the you know some a website that's got the greatest places on earth, and it, and I think as Kieran says that that it doesn't necessarily mean that people will go there it's about the nature of the place and how it's sold and it certainly doesn't mean that the livelihoods of the people in the sites themselves can be necessarily improved by tourism that's a very has to be very very carefully managed it's also the case that where where the eggs get put in the basket of tourism there are dangers which at the moment with covid-19 a number of world heritage sites where both the local community and the conservation of the sites dependent on tourism income are really struggling there are great tensions in those sites um particularly in the, some of the natural sites in africa but i think in all of them at the moment where there's the dependency so about the the prehistoric site and i'm assuming that that by that question the audience member means archaeological sites around oh doors been open archaeological sites around the main world heritage site that are perhaps not as well known or perhaps part, not part of its international values with um most sites the the PM, sites are put onto the world heritage list for their what they call their outstanding universal values so the the values that are considered of international significance but it does not mean that all the other values heritage values in the place should not also be managed and in fact they are it's a requirement that they are that the what we would call local or national heritage values are managed to the same extent as what are the outstanding universal values and the reason it goes on the world heritage list sometimes though it's a matter of research and if research has has identified and uh uh clarified what those what those prehistoric or those old archaeological sites are um in the areas around then we know what they are and they can be managed but it's often it's needed what it would, what would be needed would be further research to investigate both the extent of those sites and their nature one of the things that has happened in the past with the world heritage list and it's not just related to older archaeological sites but with the 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 actual building the monument itself might have been put onto the world heritage list but it actually exists in a wider landscape that has a very long history and for example the bamian valley where the bamian vullers were destroyed in 2001 the buddhas were the main reason that the site was on the world heritage list but in fact the entire bamian valley is full of of archaeological sites and in very important cultural sites that are now the basis of the nomination so there's two two things there that we need the the entire landscape to be recognized but also that there are other values that may not be the world heritage values that should always be protected very interesting uh utpal i might uh send this question in your direction uh 
Our audience member says they're very interested to hear about the living heritage issues. Uh, are there examples of cities or areas where uh, the tensions that we've been discussing through this panel have been most managed successfully? I guess we could ask, is there a kind of best practice uh, in India, uh, uh, the best examples of where um, modernisation and conservation um, imperatives have been been met successfully or reconciled? It is happening in many places in India, particularly in the small and beautiful tourist places. Uh, even in Rajasthan, you go to Jaisalmer, it's a small town, and maybe even much more beautiful than Jaipur itself, but they have not yet made it. And there are many, many small havelis which have now become guest houses, and they have internally transformed, keeping the outer look the same, but with all modern amenities. And also the maintaining the original character of this uh, town because that's why there are thousands of people who come there. And uh, there are examples like that. Some similar things are happening in the town like Jodhpur. Even in Gujarat, there are other small towns like Morbi, etc., where people are restoring those uh, houses. Even in Ahmedabad, there are certain uh, havelis. The owner of the haveli, with the help of the French government and the local NGOs, they have restored those havelis and they have become now beautiful uh, dining places or some of them have converted into school. Earlier when I was in SEP, they were even offering us one of those buildings to convert into a kind of a school for heritage management. And so there are examples off and on, but the whole thing has to happen at the entire city level. It is a good example, but it's not been multiplied many, many times. Because for each of these uh, examples, there's somebody who is like, you no, know, who is a pioneer. He's taking the charge and whatever it means that they are going to, he's going to protect it at, at all costs and deal with everything. But the institutional framework is not strong enough to make it happen everywhere. That's, that is the issue. There are, there are many, many good examples. Even Jaipur has many. And in, in fact, Jaipur, it can be so, so beautiful. There are about three, 4,000 bungalows where the tourists live. They all go to the city of Jaipur in the morning, take pictures, walk around in the street, but they don't want to live inside because it doesn't smell good. Okay, water supply is not very good. It is very dirty. Basically, it costs a little bit of money to improve the infrastructure and they will live there. The old buildings you know, will get converted but we're using an outside infrastructure and what it needs is the different same thing for Ahmedabad. You mm. improve the infrastructure of the city, to all the vacant buildings we have converted into guest houses, restaurants, bookstores, etc. And maybe that whole economy will get rebound. The issue in Indian cities that we don't even know the value of tourism, how it contributes to the economy of the city. The municipal government is only looking at what supply, drainage, sewerage, and the property tax. They are not responsible for that. It creating an economy for the city. Tourism brings the money, but then it needs a different approach to provide infrastructure so that it brings it. Okay, there's a link. That link has to be you know, established in the government. They must realize that economy is also part of the job of the municipal government. Municipal government job is not to just clean the street and you know, provide some water. That is the issue. And that realization India will need because without that tourism, such a powerful element, but the government not understanding the importance of tourism in local governments. Like, for example, Agra. 100,000 people go every day to Agra. 99,000 come back. Because they, know, they don't know what to do. If they stay for one night after looking at the Tasman, what will they do? There's not even a signboard saying that you take this road, you go to Fatehpur, Sikri, or wherever. If Half of the people stay in Agra for one night. Agra doesn't need any economy. It is enough economy. We are trying to make polluting industries and things like that to create economy for Agra. And all the tourists are coming back to Delhi. Because we don't realize that the economy will be created by the tourists by staying there for one or two nights. And that understanding has to happen with the local government. Uh well, I think uh, we're almost out of time and apologies to those uh, who won't get their question answered. I saw, Kieran, that you wanted to respond to, to something that Ukul was saying there, but I might also try and squeeze in one last question. Uh, uh, somebody has a question about uh, Kolkata in particular and whether there's enough being done to preserve architecture um, in Kolkata. So if you're able to answer that question uh, <laughs> as, as well as respond to Utpul, that that'll, I think, see us, see us out. No, I have no 
uh, experience of working in Kolkata, so I can't comment on to that. But I was just alluding to one more example, which has now become almost a landmark in, in India, uh, which is the Humayun's tomb in Delhi. Because one of the things that uh, we have to understand is the larger the size of the city, the more complex urban problem. So you're not talking heritage for the sake of heritage. Heritage gets mingled with urbanization issues. And therefore, tourism explicitly for heritage or culture becomes almost kind of subsided into a lot of other urbanization issues, right? Uh, so all the classic examples that Utpal mentioned about Jodhpur and uh, Jaisal, mostly in Rajasthan, that because they're exclusively cultural tourism or cultural attractions, they've been like that. They're, they're kind of away from urbanization. The one very uh, glaring example is the Humayun's tomb in Delhi, where they have done a whole of this kind of part of the city approach. So it's Humayun tombs, it's the nursery, it's the Nidabuddin Basti, it's a whole lot of community. But mind you, it's a long-term project. They were in that project for 15 years, 15 years, and now they are seeing the benefits of it. Uh, I was reading a report. Uh, I had a chance to actually be a part of that team uh, to talk, uh, who were evaluating this. They're saying the tourism income has increased by 1,000 times. 1,000 times since the time the project started. But again, how do we assimilate this income? Where, how do we really use this income? So there's a whole range of other issues that come mm. into it. That was the rejoinder I just wanted to put forth. That there are examples, but it requires a long-term commitment. And unfortunately, we do not have a framework in India to bring heritage and economy at the local government level as a main agenda. I'm afraid that we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Uh, thank you to our panellists. That was a really um, exceptionally interesting discussion on a range of issues. And um, thank you also to our audience for watching this Latrobe Asia event uh, presented as part of Australia India Week uh, in collaboration uh, with the Australia India Institute. Uh, this webinar has been recorded. Uh, if you've registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready. Our next Latrobe Asia public event uh, is on Australia-China relations, a new low point, uh, and that will be screening on Wednesday, 11th of November at 5.30pm, and you can find the details on our website. So please follow us uh, on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Thank you.